Hello, and welcome to a special edition of the Asia Mattress Podcast. We have the pleasure of being hosted at the Association for Asian Studies, AAS Annual Conference, held online this year. I'd like to first thank the organizers of the conference, AAS and Iraform. My name is Yuka Kobayashi, and I'm the Assistant Professor of China and International Politics at SOAS University of London. Today, I will be in discussion with Professor Pratap Mehta. Professor Mehta is a professor of political science and former vice chancellor at Ashoka University. He was previously president of Center of Policy Research and held previous appointments at Harvard, JNU, and the Global Faculty Program at NYU Law School. He has published widely in political theory, constitutional law, society and politics in India, governance and political economy, and international affairs. He was also awarded the Infoseas Prize for the Social Sciences. Today, we will be discussing India in the COVID era, the challenges and opportunities posed by Prime Minister Modi's leadership, which emphasizes Hindutva nationalism. How these developments have impacted India's domestic politics will be under question, and international relations and India's response to COVID-19. Before starting our discussion, a bit of background on the topic. India is the second populous country in the world, only after China. India is the biggest democracy with the most complex voting system. It has also been a key ally for Western democratic nations in the Indo-Pacific and seen as a crucial country for the liberal world order. However, recent developments under Prime Minister Modi and the challenges posed by COVID question how liberal India actually is. Let me now first turn to the question of domestic politics. So Pratap, I'd like to first ask, how is India coping with COVID? First of all, thank you, Professor Kobayashi, for hosting this panel. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. And thanks to AAS, as always, for putting together a, a marvelous program. So I think two things about this current moment. India now has the unique distinction of producing the highest number of daily coronavirus cases per day. It's almost 80,000 per day. And at the same time, our economic GDP numbers just came out yesterday, which show a year-on-year -year quarterly contraction of 23% of the economy. So you might say uh, India is now one of the worst performing on COVID, at least just in terms of numbers, not per capita, but total numbers. And it is at the same time facing a severe economic crisis. I think, to be fair, I think India's economy was already slowing going into the pandemic. We're closer to 4% growth rate, which is really pretty suboptimal performance for India. And I think what the pandemic has done is, in a sense, exacerbated India's economic vulnerabilities. On the other side of the ledger, I think the big challenge now is COVID is now spreading to uh, the eastern part of India, potentially to rural geographies, which have so far been immune from it. And I think the worry is that the health infrastructure of the kind that you had in cities like Pune, Bombay, Delhi, which were the earlier epicenters of the disease, the health infrastructure in these areas is really nowhere close to what these big cities had. So there is a possibility in some senses that you could actually see the death rates rise. India has not been an outlier in terms of death rates, to be quite fair. But I think it is an interesting question that as the disease spreads to areas of more poverty and vulnerability, whether you might actually see the death rates rise. 
That's very interesting, Pratav. I find it very fascinating because I've been following the Indian case. And as I understand, Prime Minister Modi's popularity has risen after the um, COVID outbreak, which is really counter to the examples that we see in Japan. Abe's um, popularity has plummeted. And also where I'm based in the UK, Johnson's herd immunity was a big mistake and popularity has really plummeted. So how do we understand how Prime Minister Modi has gained popularity and how will this be impacted, as you describe, when this epidemic hits the less infrastructural um, capacity areas in the East? So I think this is a puzzle. And to be fair, I think Prime Minister Modi's popularity was pretty high going into the pandemic. It's hard to argue whether it's risen or not, but it's certainly not plummeted. And you have not seen the kind of adverse reaction that you would expect with numbers like the ones that we have seen. And I think there are broadly four things at play. I think the first foremost is obviously the complete decimation of the opposition in India. I mean, if Mr. Modi's performance has been nothing to write home about, uh, I think the crisis in the Congress party and almost every other opposition party, which even in a time of national crisis are not able to get their act together just in terms of, you know, Congress still doesn't have a leader, it's caught in its faction fights. So I think some of it is just the sense that there is no other alternative as suboptimal as Prime Minister Modi's leadership might be. I think the second and I think important I think factor to in some senses keep in mind is that what Mr. Modi has managed to create is an extraordinary political machine. I think I have to say that the BJP's ability to mobilize the BJP's and the state's ability to, in some senses, mobilize the media, social media, uh, in some senses, create a whole new information order, if you like, right, which so asymmetrically privileges them, I think is actually quite striking. I don't think that's the whole story. I don't think it is just a propaganda story. But I do think there is something happening in the way in which the information order is actually controlled and disseminated that contributes, as it were, to less criticism of the regime than you might otherwise get. I think the third thing, which is, I think, important to bear in mind is, you know, many political scientists in India have been talking about the fact that a lot of Indian electoral politics seems to have shifted a bit from a politics of accountability to a politics of faith, where the purpose of an election is, in a sense, is to elect a leader and then sort of invest your faith in them. And in part, that leader redeems that faith for you, not on conventional grounds like delivering you know, on the economy. I think there is a deep disjuncture between the economy and politics in India right now. But the leader does deliver you, for you on a lot of core identity issues. And if you look at Mr. Modi's record, you have to say that almost, almost every political item that was on the Hindutva agenda, which is you know, the construction of the temple at the disputed site in Ayodhya, revocation of Article 370 in Kashmir, revocation of the triple talaq, the divorce laws in relation to Muslim women, all of those things that were on his, as it were, Hindutva agenda, all those promises he has fulfilled in some senses. So in some ways, the power of the leader is to kind of stand in, as it were, as the totem of the community. And that's a politics that seems to be dominating over economic issues at the moment. Very fascinating. I wondered at this point, if we can turn into a little bit more, digging more deeper into domestic politics of India. I think it's really fascinating examining Prime Minister Modi's popularity. And 
as you mentioned, if you'd look at what he's done in the second term, especially in the past year, we've seen the Citizen Amendment Act, the National Register for Citizens, and as you mentioned, the Ayodhya dispute. And so when you examine these developments, it seems to really counter the spirit of the Constitution of 1950, which I understand as being a much more secular constitution. So if we have this secular constitution on one hand, and these developments of Prime Minister Modi, how do you envision secularism to look like in the future of India? So oh, this is a really big and fascinating question. I think I'd answer it this way. I mean, I, I, secularism is, as you know, a term loaded with now such a complicated political and philosophical history and prone to misuse because, you know, in some ways, BJP also presents itself as a secular party, right? It says that we are simply fulfilling a particular version of secularism, that the previous kind of secularism that India practiced was, in a sense, an opportunistic secularism that was distributing goods and rights along the lines of community identity, and our secularism is a more principled one. That's their claim, at least. So the way I'd like to think of it is, I think, on four dimensions very, very quickly. One is on the dimension of majoritarianism which is both in constitutional law, and that's why the Citizenship Amendment Act was such a significant act. It was for the first time practically, right, that a law pertaining to citizenship in some senses used religious categories. We could have easily drafted a law that achieved the same objective of granting refugees from neighboring states, uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh, citizenship in India, without recourse to the religious categories that were used in the law. And the only function seemed to be to indicate that Muslims would require a different pathway. Technically, they're still not excluded, but they would require a different pathway. So majoritarianism is, in a sense, being enshrined in constitutional law. Many think, for example, that the Ayodhya judgment was a deeply flawed judgment. So majoritarianism is being enshrined in constitutional law, and it's also being enshrined in Indian politics. I think one pithy way to capture that is something BJP leaders often say, that the previous regimes depended a lot on minority votes. They will rhetorically exaggerate and say that minorities had a veto on policy in India. And now the BJP proudly proclaims that we make the minorities irrelevant. And it is the case that I think it's first time since independence that it has become very difficult for any political party to, in some senses, reach out to minorities, you know, to create a program of political inclusion. So there is political majoritarianism. So I think that's the first dimension. I think the second dimension, which I think is equally worrying, is the erosion of civil liberties in India. Now, agreed, India has always had a little bit of an uneven record on some aspects of civil liberties. We've had special powers in place, Armed Forces Special Powers Act, for example, which has been used in conflict zones. But the kind of decimation of civil liberties that we are beginning to see at this juncture is worrying. And it's worrying because independent institutions that we thought would protect civil liberties, of India, for example, have actually abdicated the role in something as basic as habeas corpus hearings. Now, habeas corpus is a cornerstone of any liberal society. And the fact that so many independent institutions are caving in, I think, is a cause for worry. I think the third cause for worry is the immense centralization of power. 
I mean, we used to think Indira Gandhi's regime was centralized, but frankly, it's not a patch on the centralization in the current government. And I, I mean centralization in all directions, centralization in terms of the relationship between the center and the states, centralization within the BJP and the political party. And so the center and centralization of power is almost never good for a liberal democracy. And fourth and finally, I think you're getting a phenomenon that you're seeing in other democracies, the United States in particular as well, which is a kind of slow poisoning of civil society, where civil society discourse now is so polarized and communalized that you sometimes fear that even if there are electoral remedies for this regime, uh, the kind of poison of prejudice in some senses, that is, I think, characterizing uh, significant sections of Indian civil society, is probably going to cast a long shadow on Indian democracy for some time to come. Thank you. I think these are very fascinating points. I have um, more follow-up questions on these points, but I wondered if I can ask, examining from the outside, it seems like a lot of these tendencies have really escalated in the second term of Modi. And in the first term, there was a lot more support. But in the second term, we see a lot more devising of the Indian population. And I wondered, is this an accurate assessment or is it something that's more continuous that happened throughout the two terms? No, I, I mean, there is some continuity. I mean, I think they never hid this agenda, as it were. I mean, it's, it's always been in their manifesto. But I think two things that have happened in the second term, right? One is, of course, their power has become much more consolidated. And I think one of the things BJP is quite clever about is making its moves after it has consolidated power. So, you know, you, you escalate in relation to what you are able to achieve. I mean, there was no point in some senses raising the heat on some of these issues six years ago when you did not control the Supreme Court or you could not influence the Supreme Court, where you did not have control of the second chamber of parliament where media was perhaps a bit more combative. So I think just the sheer consolidation of power, I think in the second term, I think sort of emboldens that agenda. But the second thing which matters probably at the margin a little bit, I think is also the changing international context. I think when Mr. Modi came to power, Obama was president of the United States. And while it's true that outside powers don't influence Indian politics much, I think for a new leader to be aspirationally part of a club of great leaders, you might say required a certain kind of restraint. I mean, if you want to be a member of that club, I think with Mr. Trump's coming and frankly, with the radicalization of power that you're seeing in China, frankly, all bets are off in the Indian system. I mean, there's no state right now who's going to be held accountable for pretty much anything in the Indian national system. So in that sense, I think there is a lot more space for maneuver right now than you probably had six years ago. It's really fascinating because I remember 2011 when Hillary Clinton went to India on her state visit, she actually said India has the gold standard for elections, you know, and it was really hailed as being the number one democratic country in India being a real gold standard for elections. So what you illustrate there shows a lot of inconsistencies within this kind of democratic system, which I think is fascinating. But I wondered if we can turn to how that impacts on India's relations with its neighbors that you sort of alluded to earlier. So if you actually look at the list of factors that are actually quite problematic happening in civil society and also with the constitutional system in India, 
It really echoes with my own work on China. We're seeing a very much more nationalized China with this kind of concentration at the elite level with Xi Jinping, this cult of personality. And similarly, you're having this kind of Chineseness equated with Han Chinese and a lot of the exclusion of the minorities, which I understand is the case with India. And of course, China and India are completely different systems. One's an authoritarian regime and one's a democratic regime. But these tendencies really are parallel. And I wondered if these exclusion of minorities and how this would impact on its neighbors, has that changed anything, as you say, with relations in the regional neighbors around India? So I think two things. One quickly, I mean, I think, I think, the, I think the comparison with China is fascinating, and, and although they're obviously very different systems. And I do think right now, I mean, I think in all fairness, it's difficult to characterize any action that the Modi government uh, might have taken that would be akin to, let's say, what China has done in Xinjiang, for example. I think right now the majority of the game seems to be to send periodic signals about lines that minorities should not cross. It's not in that sense a, a program of sort of cultural assimilation. I think that's much harder to do in India in any case. But in terms of relations with neighbors, I think two things. One, our relationship with all our neighbors has deteriorated considerably over the last three to four years. With Pakistan, of course, as you know, it's, it's almost been intractable for a number of years now. And to be very honest, I think Pakistan's domestic political economy is also not going to allow kind of any overtures or reproach. To be fair, Mr. Modi did try in his first term. He even dropped into Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif's family wedding uninvited. So there were gestures of that kind. But I think so long as I think the Kashmir issue remains unresolved between the two parties and Pakistan's domestic political economy remains what it is, there's no prospect of that relationship improving. Bangladesh, I think, is a more interesting case where India had developed fantastic relations with Bangladesh, frankly. And I think the Citizenship Amendment Act, uh, in particular because it was accompanied by a lot of rhetoric about illegal Bangladesh immigration into India, actually did sour that relationship. I mean, it's, it's, it was just, just the wrong cultural signal to send. But I think what's interesting right now is that what the Indian government is trying to do in its region is to use the COVID crisis as a kind of diplomatic enabler so as you know, India is most likely to be the production site for about half the world's vaccines once the vaccine comes out. And it is actually striking that the Modi government has reached out to our neighbors to assure them that they will get sort of first claim in some senses on India's vaccine production facility. So I think, I think those relationships will continue. I think Nepal has been the big surprise. India has an open border with Nepal. And Nepal has simply escalated a territorial dispute with India that nobody on both sides even remembered existed. And I think Nepal has now been caught in the kind of India-China strategic sort of crosshairs. So yes, it's going to be a little bit of a challenging time for diplomacy in South Asia. I think you can say that again. Yes, absolutely. And I wondered if we can expand this kind of relationship a little bit further to look at this tension with China. I find it fascinating because early on, about a decade ago, you had China and India really partnering in various issue areas as rising powers or emerging powers. So for example, if you look at the BRICS or the basic group in UNFCCC and climate change, you have this kind of overlapping of interest with being number one in emitters as China and number three for India. 
Similarly, you have the number one population in China, number two population in India. So there were a lot of factors that brought these two rising powers together. But as I understand, these tensions have really kind of risen in the past couple of months with this border clash. And also, if you look at trade relations, what's happening with these kinds of apps being banned from India and a lot of the couriers being banned from entry from China. So you're seeing really heightened tensions. And I think China's even thinking of taking these issues to the WTO for unfair discrimination. So how do you actually see the future of Sino-Indian relations? Because till now, we actually thought of Sino-Indian relations. Yes, they do have the tension on border complex. But a lot of similarities really brought them together, be it in political economy and also climate change. But I don't think this is actually the way forward between these two countries, because as I understand, there's really no turning back in terms of a lot of the decisions that have been taken domestically vis-a-vis the China policy. That's right. I think by the, I mean, there's, a, there's a small group of strategic sort of study scholars who, who, are, who are sort of valiantly at it. But I think the geopolitical implications of this crisis. So, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that if you look at the rhetoric from both sides, something close to war cannot be ruled out. I mean, it's, that's, that's how tense it is. It's also, I think, made more complicated by the fact that there doesn't seem to be now much high-level engagement between India and China. I mean, I think one measure of this relationship, and again, to be fair, Mr. Modi tried. I mean, he had, I think, 18 summits with President Xi. And there's a deep sense in India of betrayal. It's almost a rerun of 1962 that we tried to find a more vivendi with China. We reached out for a rapprochement. And yet, at least on the Indian reading, China has reneged on what we thought were working arrangements on how to manage the border. I mean, in all fairness, not since 1967 have there been any major incidents on the border. And both countries had managed it well. And the consequence has been that there is a rising tide of anti-Chinese nationalism in India manifested now in concrete policy, India is basically deciding to decouple from China. I mean, I think people are underestimating not just the fact that the apps, you know, various apps like TikTok and stuff, and India set the template for this, which the United States is now trying to follow, of kind of keeping Chinese tech companies out. But I think quietly now there's a determination to just make sure that India is no longer dependent on Chinese exports. This may even go beyond just mere diversification. Informally, apparently, Indian customs are just not aligned any Chinese goods in. Right? So that's how serious I think the resolve for decoupling is, even at the cost of some short-term hit to Indian industry, which is reliant on Chinese you know, intermediate goods and other things. But I think that resolve is now quite, quite firm. And I think it's also slightly emboldened by the fact that as far as India sees, even the rest of the world is going to head in this direction. In the United States, mm-hmm. India's potential quad partners, Australia. So globally, I think you are getting, you know, you're beginning to get this construct where now people are beginning to say, okay, we have to treat China as an adversary. Now, it's more complicated in China's case because China's footprint of the world is so large and it's, it's such an important country. It's not quite clear what that means. But I don't think we should be in any doubt about how resolute this government is about proceeding on a path of decoupling. Really interesting. So what you outlined there is some kind of almost a paradigm shift in a sense of materially and ideologically, you're actually seeing the era of the Hindi-Chini bye-bye, you know, this kind of whirling together and these kinds of interests. 
to really be ending and going towards much more of a harsher stance, not just India, but globally vis-a-vis China. Now, I'm wondering whether this will actually impact at all how India plays its game in the SCO and AIIB. As we know, India joined the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is a security organization primarily led by the Chinese and the Russians. They joined in 2017 as a latecomer, but nevertheless, they joined together with Pakistan. So I find that really fascinating. They joined so late in 2017. And they're also the major benefactor of the Asian Infrastructural Investment Bank, the AIIB, which is the infrastructural bank set up by China a couple of years ago. So in that sense, how will these developments impact on these kinds of China and India and international organizations? So I think in terms of international organizations, I think, I think we're at an interesting conjuncture where, you know, you're right that five years ago, frankly, India's strategy was we want to seat at pretty much every table, right? And I think it was that time in world affairs. I mean, frankly, you know, you didn't even have to be a member of a region to get a seat on that table. I think with the SEO, you're already seeing modest signs of a disengagement. So there were supposed to have been these SEO military exercises. India has officially given the excuse that because of COVID, it's not going to participate. But absolutely everybody understands that Indian troops are busy on the border, which is why they don't want to participate. I think SCO will frankly depend a lot, not just on the China factor, but on the Russia factor. I think India still has a very close relationship with Russia. And, you know, Russia is going to be one of the significant countries in thinking about how one manages China. It's not clear how much leverage the Russians have over China. So I think India is going to just calibrate its response and see that, look, if for some reason it serves a strategic purpose in keeping some lines open with the Russians and stuff. Otherwise, it's going to disengage. But broadly speaking, I think any international forum where there is likely to be Chinese dominance, I think is now going to be a lot more suspect in Indian eyes. And this will probably now extend even to thinking of coalitions around other global multilateral institutions. As you know, there's, there's a lot of kind of concern about how much kind of China is beginning to dominate the multilateral system. Now, I think you would probably get more concerted coalitions acting in those arenas as well. But, but this will, I think, be calibrated. I mean, I think this is a complicated chess game with a lot of other big powers on board. But certainly, I think the presumptive suspicion of Chinese dominance is now very deep. Yes, and I wonder if you can kind of tie that to the broader picture. So we, so far, we've looked at India border regions and also India's international relations with its neighbors and also in international organizations. So as you say, this is not a game that India is just playing vis-a-vis China, but it's actually within this kind of global community, which has really shifted its tone against China, especially after COVID-19. There's more accountability being raised against China's rise. And this is in relation to COVID-19 and also developments around Hong Kong and Xinjiang. So in that sense, we've seen alliances like the Inter-Parliamentary Alliance on China, where we see a lot of Western democratic states and also Japan's parliamentarians linking together and pressing for more accountability from China. And in this kind of context, India is really raised as a key ally in the Indo-Pacific. So this kind of accountability, they need a partner in the region. And as being the number one democratic country in the Asia-Pacific, It's viewed in a lot of Western democratic states as being a very reliable ally. And it's not just ideologically. Also materially, it's been part of exercises like the Malabar exercises, RIMPAC. 
So the Indian Ocean is crucial geostrategically. So geostrategically, ideologically, and geoeconomically, India is raised as a key ally for Western democratic states. And when these Western democratic states' tides have shifted towards China, how is India viewing this partnership with these Western democratic states? Because thus far, we've been hearing quite a lot from Western democratic states saying, oh, India is the former, you know, the Commonwealth, and so we actually need India there as a strong India. How is those overtures received in India? So I think a couple of things. I mean, I think one thing which has been true, I think, for the last 20 years or so, particularly in the United States, is, and to be fair to the United States, that independently of, of whether India allies with the United States in some formal capacity or not, I think they see India, a successful prosperous India, as a potential source of stability in Asia, right? And, you know, to that extent, and, and, and I think the nuclear deal, for example, was one acknowledgement of that fact. Except for Pakistan, there's almost no country that actually finds India threatening or with whom India has some intractable sort of conflicts. I think we are at this interesting conjuncture where China seems to have annoyed most of its other Asian neighbors around one dimension or another. So I think there is a lot of you might say, in Western investment now in at least India being a source of stability, even if not of alliance. Traditionally, India, as you know, has been very reluctant to enter into alliances, formal alliances. There is a kind of strain of non-alignment that still runs through Indian thinking about the world, a quest for its own strategic autonomy. And part of that, I think, comes from the fact that, look, India is based, situated in Asia, and at the end of the day, it'll have to deal with its own challenges. But I think you will get, I think, two significant movements. One is greater emphasis on organizations like the Quad, which India was already part of, but I think now there's more investment in signaling that there is an alliance of democracies that can also potentially do greater military coordination than it has done up till now. I think the second dimension, which is going to be interesting to watch, and I think a lot will depend on what happens in the United States, is trade. Because India's other big dilemma is that India wants to expand the space for its development in the international system. And up until recently, it had been convinced that globalization had been good for India. But if every other country in the world, and particularly the United States, I think begins to, in some senses, law back from the form of globalization that we saw over the last 15, 20 years. I think that's a place where there's potential for some U.S.-Indian tension, because I think on trade, they don't see eye to eye, and frankly, are in competitors in, in, in a number of areas. So I think it'll be, the, it'll be, in a sense, the balancing out of what is it that expands India's development space versus, in a sense, the security imperatives that are required to bring stability to Asia. Mm. It's really fascinating. With this kind of broader grand strategy of India that you paint, I'm just wondering if we can go a little bit into Sino-Indian competition between the Belt and Road Initiative. This is one area I'm working on. I'm fascinated about whether or not or how much India supports the Belt and Road. Is it part of Belt and Road? Is it more in the camp of the free and open Indo-Pacific? And in my own work, I've examined how this competition plays out in Southeast Asia where it's really interesting to look at sort of the, the driving forces of China's investments and the driving forces of Indian investments. So, for example, 
in Myanmar, you have a lot of Indian investments in the north that connect the two provinces of India. But it's really very much looking at it from kind of the interests of the region or the, the country. Whereas China is really looking more towards this belt and road with this grand strategic aims. And so there was this kind of very different kind of approaches taken. And India is partly benefiting from AIIB. So it's kind of an interesting position. Is that going to be changing this alliance between a free and open Indo-Pacific and Belt and Road? Where does India go forward? So as you know, India was always very skeptical of the Belt and Road Initiative. I mean, it never formally joined. And in fact, many argue that's one of the sources of kind of sound and Sino-Indian tensions. And India did not join it for three reasons. One, because there are some Belt and Road issues that are right in our neighborhood. As you know, the Chinese are building in Gilgit, Pakistan, which is sort of northern Pakistan, which has strategic implications in a disputed territory with Pakistan for India. And so India was very clear from the start that, look, any Belt and Road Initiative cannot come at the expense of prejudging these border issues. The second, I think, was a little bit of a suspicion that while the Belt and Road Initiative might be good for infrastructure development, we should be under no doubt that, at least in Indian minds, it was the way in which kind of the Chinese were signaling the creation of a kind of hierarchy in Asia and Eurasia. So yes, countries were being connected through this infrastructure, but they were being connected through, in some sense, as a clear, clear center that this was not going to be an equal partnership. I mean, this really was more like everybody arriving and paying homage to the Chinese. The third reason, and it's connected to the second, that there was a suspicion that a lot of the Belt and Road projects, this is not uniformly the case, but in many countries, particularly in India's neighborhood, were less about economic logic. They were even less about strategic logic in the conventional sense. They were more about using the local political economy to try and get regimes in the region dependent on China. So in Sri Lanka, for example, I mean, you know, a whole bunch of ports were built that were economically not viable without Indian cooperation. These kind of megalomaniac grand projects, which are more about pleasing the Rajpakshas and the local rulers. And at this point, I think it's an interesting question in the wake of COVID, what the financing implications for all of these projects are. So India has actually pretty much been out of the Belt and Road story as well. I think AIB was slightly different because, I mean, I think India did think that at some point that alternative development bank, infrastructure bank with different kinds of conditionalities in the IMF and World Bank. It was the process of sort of diversifying. And in any case, as you know, with all of these banks, right, ultimately, they want to lend to lenders who can pay back. So the World Bank wants to push out money to India anytime, as does the AIIB. So I, I think the AIIB doesn't actually loom large in the Indian imagination. It's one of those things, nice to have a seat at the table, but not hugely significant. Thank you, Pratap. That was very interesting discussion. I'd like to also thank AAS for hosting us today and the producers at Asian Matters Podcast, Sanan Dillon and Vincent Nee. Finally, thank you to the audience for listening today. If you have any feedback, please contact us at asiamatterspod.com.